Vacations are always good. Sometimes they're even great. And Celebrity Cruises is about to ruin all of that. Because once you explore with us, you'll never want a vacation any other way. And with new Quick Caribbean Escapes, you'll never want a weekend any other way either. Celebrity Cruises. Nothing comes close. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Ships Registry, Malta and Ecuador. Welcome to Pod Save the World. This is Tommy Vitor. This is the first episode of a new show where I try to bring you behind the scenes on all the big decisions made on foreign policy. The first conversation I'm having is with a guy named Jake Sullivan. Jake is one of the smartest guys I worked with in politics. He was Hillary Clinton's director of policy planning at the State Department. He was Joe Biden's national security advisor. He was the top policy guy on Clinton's 2016 campaign. He led the Iran talks. He was in the PDB every day. He lived every minute of the Russian hacking scandal. So you're going to want to hear what he has to say. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, Ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, 
you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. I'm here with Jake Sullivan. Jake was the deputy chief of staff for Hillary Clinton at the State Department. Jake was the youngest ever director of policy planning at the State Department. He was Joe Biden's national security advisor at the White House and policy director for Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign. Those are some pretty pretty big job titles, Jake. Now you can add to that a resume bullet, which is the first ever Pod Save America franchise interview. So I'm humbled and honored. <laughs> Glad to be here. Your parents, Thank you. Yes. Your parents will be proud. I remember talking to Samantha Power, who is now um, Barack Obama's permanent ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, she wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book on genocide. And she was saying how she she spent all these years writing about the rooms where decisions are made and who was in them and who thought what. And then one day she looked around and realized, holy shit, this is the room. Uh, I'm in it. I'm part of this discussion. Did you did you have that feeling? <laughs> yeah. In fact, I when I talk to young people about sitting in the situation room or in the Oval Office, for that matter, with the president, as you're talking about hard national security decisions, you recognize just how imperfect this whole thing is, yeah. that it's imperfect people with imperfect information facing imperfect choices. And so, of course, you're going to get imperfect results. Nothing's yeah. ever going to work out exactly as you want. And there will be days where you're sitting there working on a hard decision and thinking to yourself, there must be some other room somewhere like <laughs> down the hall where the real people are making the real decisions yeah. because it can't it can't be us. And I don't mean that to be critical of us. Right. It's that, you know, this is human stuff. Yeah. And with all of the failings and the foibles of humans, but also all of their creativity and genius too. And so there's a lot of days where I just thought, holy cow, like yeah. this is where it is. This is this is it. It's this group of people making these decisions. Totally. I mean, whenever people float like wild conspiracy theories towards me or like some sort of Machiavellian view of politics, you have to realize that these are humans with real failings making decisions, yeah, you know? Exactly. I mean, like no one is in there in there pulling the strings in a way that's sort of like running the show. Like Karl Rove, Democrats demagogue Karl Rove to no end, and we were just silly about it. Right. Once you actually work in these right. jobs. But I remember when you made the move from the State Department to become the vice president's national security advisor. I think the White House team got together, the White House NSC team, and colluded to have Obama call you from Air Force One to put, to put the lean on you to take a job that I don't know that you were necessarily itching to take, given how hard you had worked, given the likelihood um, that Hillary Clinton was going to run for president and you would have a big role in that. What, what was that phone call like? It was funny. I was actually on the phone with my mom, who was complaining that I you know, didn't call her enough. Uh -huh. And I said, well, I got to go. And she's like, well, what the heck for? I said, well, my assistant just put a note in front of me that the president's on the line. She's like, the president of what? You know, and I, I said, <laughs> I think it's the president of the United States. I'm not actually sure. Uh, so I got on the phone with him. And he, after the vice president had, had put on the hard sell, basically said, you're not going to get a better opportunity to join a team of people to really make a difference mm -hmm. and leave a mark on the world. And that was a pretty simple but pretty persuasive argument. So yeah. I went over uh, right after Hillary left the State Department to join the team at the White House. And that was that was right after the Burma trip, right? That's right. I met uh, with President Obama in Burma. And my job at the State Department was to work on basically everything under the sun mm -hmm. from 
Azerbaijan to Zambia and everything in between. But the president, who didn't know me that well at the time, at the end of uh, 2012, sort of thought of me as the Burma expert. Right. So he was just peppering me with questions about Burma. And I had worked hard on the issue along with people like Ben Rhodes mm -hmm. um, and Kurt Campbell to try and help with the opening to Burma, which right. is this closed country that we didn't have diplomatic relations with. But I wasn't deeply steeped in Burmese history. So I think the scientific term is BSing a bit. It kind of got <laughs> my way spot. through yeah. the conversation with the president. But apparently he thought it, it went pretty well. And and that was when you guys all got together and said, hey, we should, we should drag this guy over to the White yeah, House. Yeah, I think Rhodes... Um was like, hey, we're going to fuck with Jake on this call. It's going <laughs> to be funny. Uh, well, I'm very glad you took that job. I'm sure the vice president was very glad you took that job. Um, one of your daily jobs in that role was to attend the, the president's daily briefing, the PDB, right. uh, which is the morning intelligence briefing. A lot has been written about Trump's decision to skip these briefings. And I'm wondering if you think it's a big deal, uh, if you can help people sort of understand what the PDB is, why it's important. And obviously, you know, without disclosing anything classified, because right. we, we don't do that here, right. um, to talk about like what kind of things are raised in this, in this issue, in this competition. So it takes place, it's the first thing the president does in the morning, uh, and it takes place in the Oval Office. Mm -hmm. And the president, the vice president, and their four or five top national security aides. A small group. Yeah, small group. Just those, those six or seven people uh, gather for 30 minutes to an hour every day. And for the first half of it, the either the director of national intelligence, which is the top comprehensive intelligence job in the government, or his deputy, comes in and does a briefing, lays down what are the most important developments that the intelligence community has seen over the previous 24 hours. Most of it's about immediate threats and mm -hmm. immediate challenges, but some of it's about worrying longer-term trends mm -hmm. too. And they go through and kind of lay out what they see as being the big intelligence priorities. And the president will ask questions and the rest of us could ask questions. And then they leave and then there's a period of time where the president can just sit with his senior national security people and say – okay, what's on tap? What's right. going on? And it's informal. It's, there's not paper. It's just an opportunity to check signals. And it really sets the tone for everybody uh, for what our national security priorities are going to be, how to tee up the big decisions, how to make sure that we're mm -hmm. taking the president's guidance and implementing it. Which and, is the hardest part of government, by the way. Yeah, exactly. The president can make decisions. The government doesn't necessarily uh, listen or follow through, as we as we learned over time. Well, this is what's interesting about having a guy who's had a career in business as president, right. and for that matter, right. a guy who's had a career in business who's the nominee for secretary of state, Rex Tillerson, mm -hmm. the the Exxon CEO. Mm -hmm. Government's a little different, yeah, you know. The yeah. guy at the top of the pyramid says do X and that filters its way through the bureaucracy and it usually ends up being X minus something right. by the time it finally gets uh, yeah. by the time it gets it's fully a, implemented. It, yeah, I was asked the other day what advice I had for for like the NSC press guy for Trump. And one of the things I said was if if you're trying to figure out what was said in a meeting or what the conclusions were reached Treat yourself, be like a reporter. Don't get one source, get two, because inevitably right. there will be differences in, in what folks think happened. So every president consumes intelligence differently, right? So how deep a dive was this? Would it be like reading a transcript of an intercepted email or phone call, or, or, or is it more high level? In your it's a little more high level than that. But honestly, particularly with President Obama, even before he came into the room to have that meeting, mm -hmm. 
he would have gone through maybe 25 to 30 intelligence products. And what I mean by that is everything from a, you know, signals communication that was intercepted Mm -hmm. and not maybe the transcript, but a pretty good summary of it to an analysis of the political dynamics in a major country Mm -hmm. and what that meant for what they were going to do vis-a-vis the United States or one of our allies. So he would have already consumed this enormous amount of intelligence in the morning before coming in. And then the top intel guy would pick out three or four things to focus on, and the president could react to those, or he could talk about something he'd already read and say, hey, I saw this thing, and that made me worried. I'm worried that that's a threat to national security, and we're not doing enough about it. What do you think, and and what could be done? So you know, when I hear Donald Trump say, I don't think I need an intelligence briefing, I don't really think the intelligence community knows what they're doing, it's pretty distressing because it's effectively the equivalent of a doctor operating on a patient without reading the chart. Right. Like walking in and yeah. saying, hey, I don't need to look at that patient's medical history. I don't need to know what the... I read the paper in 1996. I'm good right. for life. Like, I, Two things he said on the campaign trail that really stuck with me. One, he said, I don't need to listen to other people about major issues like Syria because I have a very good brain. Yep. And the second was uh, when pressed on where he gets his national security information, he said, I watch the shows. And I will tell you as somebody who has watched the shows and has been in the PDB, uh, there is a massive difference in yeah. the seriousness and quality of the information that you're getting. And the professionalism of our intelligence community it really can't be understated. Does it mean they get it right every single time? No. Of course not. Right. They're imperfect just like all the other folks around the table, but they add a huge amount to our understanding of the threats we face and the opportunities we have yeah. out there. And we wouldn't have an Iran deal or an opening to Cuba or a Paris climate agreement mm-hmm. if we didn't have the intel professionals help right. us out. And, and by the way, I mean, he keeps, he keeps talking about how we got WMD wrong with Iraq. That is true. Half the people at the CIA didn't work there. Right. Before 2003, right? right? I mean, it, it's just so unfair to uh, denounce them. But quick before we move on, how cool is it when the PDB moved from the book to the iPad format? I yeah, mean, come on. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty good. Uh, none of us quite trusted that <laughs> you could put this on a iPad and still feel like it was actually secure, you know? Yeah. But these guys came in and they basically said, we've worked it out. We can have, you can have at your fingertips anything you want. In, in terms of, of U.S. intelligence products, and there it is for you all in a simple iPad. And I'll tell you, the person who liked that the most was President Obama. Yeah, he oh, loved that iPad. Yeah, I never got to play with one of the Intel iPads. It was one of my biggest regrets in government. But like the when I would be in meetings as part of the national security staff with the um, the guys from the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff's office, the deputy or the the vice chairman and, and chairman. Uh, they had the cool iPads first because they have the biggest budget. That's and right. There was a lot of jealousy uh, among the NSC. Speaking of intelligence, uh, it appears that it's the clear consensus opinion of the intelligence community that Russia was behind the hack of the DNC, the hack of John Podesta's email, uh, and that they think this was done not just to you know, sow discord or undercut our faith in democracy, but to help Trump win. There's a report out. The U.S. intercepted communications where Russian officials were celebrating Trump's victory. I mean, it sounds like this isn't just forensics. This sounds like we have the Russians dead to rights through a a variety of means. I'm wondering what your thoughts on these reports and when you were on the Clinton presidential campaign – when you guys started to have a sense of the scope of this hack and how big a deal this actually was? You know, it's funny. I'm very happy that these 
intelligence reports are finally being made public because there was a number of months where I felt like I was wearing a tinfoil hat. I was the local conspiracy theorist peddling these crazy tales, trying to get reporters to pay attention because it was way back in July when the DNC was hacked and its emails were released. And we had a strong sense then that this was the Russians who had done it. And the intelligence community started to think it might be. So all the way back in July, at the time of the the Democratic National Convention, we became convinced that Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, and the Russian intelligence apparatus, which, by the way, is a pretty shady but incredibly (laughs) ruthless and effective international organization, was behind hacking into the Democratic National Committee, the Clinton campaign chair, and giving those documents and having and ultimately having them released. We, we were persuaded that that was going on. And when we would go to the media and say, guys, Russia, a hostile foreign power, is interfering in the U.S. election for the purpose of harming Hillary Clinton and helping Donald Trump, people kind of looked at us like, mm-hmm. can that Crazy. be? Can that be? I don't I don't want to believe that or I right. don't believe that. And that was incredibly frustrating. I mean, I, I have had a hard time understanding this as well. I mean, I think one can debate whether it was a big factor in the outcome of the election. But, like, let's just set that aside. I feel like the reaction to the fact that this happened is, is surprisingly blasé. And I'm wondering if you guys have a sense of why that was among the press corps. And if you have a sense of what, you know, your sense of what the implications are of a foreign adversary messing with our election. Yeah, I mean, I've thought a lot about this because I haven't been able to understand why people haven't reacted with more force to it. I think they're starting to. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason it's taken a while is because this was unimaginable. Yeah. People just couldn't believe that the U.S. election could be susceptible to the kind of foreign interference, the negative, malign foreign interference that we're seeing. And so... People had this psychological block where they thought anyone who's going out saying, hey, Putin's doing X or Y, he's pulling the strings, he's the puppet master, is right, operating down. a little yeah. bit in conspiracy theory land. Now that the intelligence community has put together what appears to be a pretty comprehensive and, as you said, dead to rights report, I actually think you're going to see the level of alarm mm-hmm. rise pretty rapidly. Right. And I think the next set of questions has to be, why, for goodness sake, does the incoming president of the United States continue to deny reality on yeah. this? And what does that tell us about right. his attitude towards Russia? And I'm pretty concerned about that. Yeah, because and I don't want to sound too partisan, but you know, you see McCain and you see Senator Lindsey Graham, both Republican senators, coming out of these briefings very convinced. I mean, this isn't Hillary Clinton saying this. This right. is this is a bunch of old bull, you know largely conservative members of the intelligence community who feel very strongly. And, you know, my sense from what I've been reading is that this isn't an instance where the CIA has collected a bunch of anecdotal evidence and their analysis is that Russians were interfering. It sounds like they have actual sort of smoking gun level evidence. So I, I guess one charge you hear is the U.S. has been interfering in foreign elections for decades. You know, we have nothing to complain about you know, we're hypocrites. And I'm wondering what you think about that kind of response from people. Well, first of all, it's fair to say that 
decades ago, we interfered in foreign elections in really negative, nasty ways. Yeah. And in fact, Barack Obama has talked about this, right. about overthrowing the elected prime minister in Iran and overthrowing the guy who got elected in Guatemala and mm -hmm. other instances back in the 50s and 60s around the world where we did some pretty dark stuff. Like yeah. we were practicers of the dark arts the way that Putin is now. Okay. But this is 2016. This is not the Cold War. Right. This is a different approach to American foreign policy. And we don't do this. Right. We do not do this kind of thing. We do support open, free, and fair elections in other countries, but we do that transparently. Mm -hmm. We do it not for the purposes of putting our thumb on the scale for a particular political party, but to just support open elections. So trying to draw a moral equivalence here is literally reading, reading Vladimir Putin's talking points, yeah. and it's nonsense. And it's fine for critics neutral third-party critics to raise the issue, they're wrong. But what concerns me is when leaders in the Congress or the president make this point, because their job is to defend the United States of America, right. gosh darn it, right, not right. to talk about how, well, you know, they can do it because we do it. I mean, I think that's a really dangerous logic for people actually charged with U.S. national security. Yeah, and, and, and I want to clarify that you're you're not being hyperbolic when you say that th those are literally Vladimir Putin's talking points. Right. In 2011, Correct. he accused Hillary Clinton of interfering in his election right. because there were protests. Right. And that was absolutely not true then. Right. It was not true now. Exactly. I, given how big a deal this is, I'm wondering what you think about the response. We, In response to uh, the hacking and the harassment of our diplomats in Russia, the U.S. has expelled uh, 35 Russian intelligence agents. And I think people are probably wondering why the hell were we they allowed here in the first place? So that's something we could talk about. We've also imposed sanctions on the Russians uh, involved in the hacking, and we've probably undertaken other covert means that you and I don't know about because we're not in government. I'm wondering, do you think that's sufficient? Is that is that enough of a deterrent, or can you even deter hacking in 2017? Look, I think the United States, which remains the most powerful, potent country in the world, has the capacity to deter other countries, including Russia, from doing this and to impose serious costs to make sure that if they do it, they'll think twice, three times, four times before doing it again. So I don't think it's like we have to throw up our hands and just live with this. Whether or not our response to what the Russians have done is sufficient totally depends on those things we don't know about. Yeah, I think expelling 35 people and, and applying some sanctions is not enough. But I do believe that this administration is doing more that we don't know about. And I am hoping that that is what is really going to send the strong message to Putin. Mm -hmm. And frankly, that's what's going to be required. I mean, this is, you know, this is the new means of engaging in a kind of low-grade asymmetric warfare. Mm -hmm. This cyber interference in Western democratic institutions in the U.S. and in Europe. And we've got to be nimble and we've got to be pretty sharp and harsh in our response, even if it's under the radar. I'm right. fine f with it being under the radar. But just doing sanctions and expulsions alone is kind of an analog response to a digital problem. Right. So I'm hoping there's this extra Because this playbook on. has worked for them in neighboring countries. That's previously. right. Putin has used this in Estonia uh, and other countries – uh, near him in Ukraine, I believe as well, yep. to sort of mess with opponents politically. The word sanctions is sort of thrown around a lot. It was always interesting to me. You know, I don't think people know what that means. It's sort of like you can sanction an individual in the Russian government so they can't travel, or you can freeze their banking. It was always shocking to me the degree to which those were effective because they personally pissed 
some of these people off so right. much, right? Their kid can't go to Harvard. Right. They can't go on vacation. Yeah. Their wife can't go shopping, you know, in New York, right. to, you know, for, for some of them or in London. And for Russian oligarchs, you know, those are actual, those hit people where it hurts. Right. Right. Um, or they can't bank, you know, they can't keep their money in a European or American bank. And so for individuals, these things sound kind of archaic, but when you're picking people who actually have some influence on the president of Russia, and you're saying you personally are going to pay a cost for what's happening, your chances of having an impact on their decision-making go up. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, I don't think a few targeted sanctions in response to an act like this is sufficient. I think we have to be taking additional means, cyber means and others, and most of those probably are appropriately done covertly so that they're not talked about publicly. Got it. Slightly changing gears. I think a lot of people listening have probably heard of the Iran deal. They probably don't know exactly what it is because if you hear one group of people in Washington talking about it, it could be the worst thing that's ever happened to our country. If you hear Obama supporters talking about it, it could be one of the president and Secretary Clinton's greatest accomplishments. So I was wondering if we could dig in a bit. First, most interestingly, you were part of the team that started these negotiations with the Iranians in, in secret. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about those talks. Like, what, what the hell is that room like? Yeah. So we, there were three of us who went on the first trip to Oman, uh, which is a small country in, in, on the Persian Gulf, very close to Iran. And the head of that country, the Sultan of Oman, had talked to President Obama and had talked to the Supreme Leader of Iran and basically made clear privately to each of them that Oman would be prepared to host American and Iranian diplomats secretly to try to bang out a deal on Iran's nuclear program. So I went uh, along with two people from the White House for the first time in, in June of 2012. I took a commercial flight quietly into Oman, got picked up on the tarmac. Uh, and taken to a room where we entered through one door and the Iranians entered through another door, and they had been instructed not to shake hands with the Americans. <laughs> so they stood on the other side sure. of the table with their right hand on their chest, like almost like they were in a sling, pledging allegiance right. or whatever, yeah. uh, but sending the message no handshake. We sat down at the table and began to take each other's measure to test whether or not it would be possible to actually have a serious negotiation about their nuclear program. It's like, why, why you guys got to be such dicks to us? Like, I don't know why you got to be such dicks to us. <laughs> Did, was it your sense when those talks started that they had permission from their leaders to, to give a little and to, to make this a productive enterprise? Or were you wondering the whole time, is this a waste? There were kind of two big questions. One was, are these people even authorized or are they just some random Iranians <laughs> right. who have shown up here and hey. are kind of like, Totally freelancing. Yeah, so, or are they actually representing the Iranian government and have the capacity to make a deal? The second question was, okay, if they are officially sanctioned, are they prepared to deal in any serious way? Basically, that first meeting, we concluded they're real. They're actually Iranian officials who have been authorized by the highest levels of Tehran to be here. Yes, so yes to one, but mm -hmm. definitely no to two. They were okay. not prepared to, to give an inch at first, not an inch. We spent about... 10 hours straight just going back and forth and essentially banging our head against the wall and making reading old grievances making no no progress you know it's interesting i kind of expected that they would go back to 1954 and 1979 and all the rest of it they didn't really do that it was mostly 
just a recitation of how important their nuclear program was to them mm-hmm. and how wrong we were for having imposed sanctions on them. It was all very much on point, but it was not productive. So those meetings conclude. You go back to the airport. You get on your commercial flight. You open your little bag of peanuts and have your <laughs> Diet Coke for free. And you have to sit for 10 hours and stew in like the most secret conversation the U.S. government is having at that time. What did you do after that? You land to go to the White House and, and debrief? No, actually – Kind of bizarrely, I had dropped off a trip that Secretary Clinton was taking that started in Paris. So I flew from Paris to Oman and ended in Mongolia. Okay, obviously. And yeah, naturally, (laughs) which included, so for her, it was stops in Paris, Afghanistan, Tokyo, Japan, and then Mongolia for a big conference in Mongolia. People started making fun of how much she traveled, but that is grueling. I can barely do SFO to Dulles. And that's like flying overnight and then walking into a meeting with the president of Afghanistan to talk about the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And then walking into a meeting with the prime minister of Japan to talk about, you know, uh, the possibility of going to war over rocks in the East China Sea kind of thing. So this is serious business. But she ended up – there was a big meeting of – the democratic countries of the world in Mongolia. So I flew from Oman to Dubai to Beijing to Mongolia and ended up at a yurt in rural Mongolia <laughs> where they were hosting a dinner at the end, basically coming straight from this meeting with the Iranians. It was a pretty bizarre circumstance. And then I had to wait uh, because we couldn't trust that we wouldn't be listened to right. in Mongolia. I had to wait till we were on our plane and airborne to debrief with Secretary Clinton about how the meeting had gone. And then we went to the White House when we got back to the U.S. That's amazing. So so you have these conversations. It's clear to you and the team you were with that there's some there there. So you guys decide to proceed. I mean, at what when do you pick back up these conversations? So it took a solid six months for us to get a second meeting on the books, just back and forth. Because that first meeting ended with each side recognizing the other side wanted to do a deal, but each side believing that the other wasn't going to give an inch. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of shadow boxing, a lot of communication through the Omanis before we set up a second meeting. And the second meeting happened uh, very early in 2013. And then we got, we began to actually talk about substance. And early in that second meeting, one of the Iranians pulled me aside. And it was after this contentious back and forth where, again, we were kind of banging our head against the wall. And he said, I've never been to America, but I understand that when you land at John Fitzgerald Kennedy Airport in New York City, there's a giant sign that says, welcome to America. Think the big. And he said, that is what we must do, Mr. Sullivan. We must think the big. I love that. So think the big became kind of our, you know, team's internal joke the to mantra. a certain extent about That's what great. we were trying to do. And by the end of the negotiations, my then fiance, now wife, made up T-shirts for us that nice. said think the big. So. so you went from thinking the big to the big. Um, I'm wondering if you could describe what the deal was in general terms and why you think uh, it will make us safer. So the basic problem with the Iranian nuclear program is that they were building a capacity to generate nuclear material, they claim, just for civilian purposes, to power nuclear power plants like we have here in the United States. So no weapons Mm -hmm. purpose, just we want power and we want to have a bunch of nuclear power plants across our country the way France has a bunch across theirs and other countries. The problem is that if you generate nuclear material for civilian purposes – you are also 
almost by definition creating the capacity to build mm -hmm. nuclear material for bomb purposes. Right. And we had lots of evidence and intelligence going back to our earlier conversation, which suggested that their goal was not to power nuclear reactors, but to build nuclear bombs. Yeah, I mean, our, not to interrupt, but our intelligence community, speaking of how incredibly effective they can be, uh, found and disclosed a secret covert facility at GOME where they were enriching nuclear materials in secret for a very long time. And exactly. We, and we President Obama exposed that. That's right. He went out in 2009 with the, the prime minister of Britain and the, and the president of France, and the three of them stood out and said, look, we caught these guys red-handed, deep buried in a mountain. <laughs> <laughs> if this is a peaceful nuclear program, yeah. I've got a, some oceanfront property right, right, in, right. in Arizona to sell you, right? So, But the Iranians kept insisting the whole time, this is just for peaceful purposes. So what do you do? What you have to do is put a lid on their program to the point where they literally don't have enough centrifuges, which are the way that you uh, basically spin uranium to generate it into mm -hmm. to nuclear material to enrich it, that they couldn't have enough of those so that they could quickly make a bomb. Right. And the other way to make a, a nuclear bomb is, is through the use of something called plutonium. And they had a reactor that they were building specifically designed to create plutonium weapons. And so we had to shut that down. So the basic deal was, number one, you can't have more than a certain number of centrifuges uh, because we have to be confident that you can't break out and make a bomb. You can't have this plutonium reactor at all because we have to be confident that you can't be making weapons-grade plutonium, have a bomb factory out of that. And we get to come look wherever we want whenever we have concerns that you're doing something like that big facility under the mountain. Uh, so we have to have international inspectors have access to all the facilities across the country. If you agree to all those things, then we will in return lift the sanctions that we've imposed on you. And that was the basic bargain that we struck with the Iranians. And, and so what about the people who say we can never trust them to, to uphold these deals because it will always, it will rely on international weapons inspectors catching them, uh, them holding up to their side of the bargain. We should just bomb their facilities to oblivion. We should we should fly a bunch of B-52s over there, whatever we would use, and just destroy everything. Right. So first of all, <laughs> this deal was not built on trust. Right. In fact, it was built on distrust. That's why you have this extensive ex inspections program. We don't trust them to not try and cheat. We have means of catching them from cheating and punishing them if they do. And that's partly built into the deal. But why not bomb them? Well, there are two major reasons. Number one, uh, that could easily start a broader war that could lead to the deployment of hundreds of thousands of U.S. troops and, you know, essentially small, cause small a regional detail, conflagration. Yeah. But the second is it wouldn't actually work to stop their nuclear program because they've mastered the capacity to enrich uranium. So all you'd be doing if you bomb their existing facilities is setting them back. So they, they still have the know-how to could put just, it all back together. Exactly. They have the uranium in the ground. They have the metal to build the centrifuges. And they have the scientists who know how to do it. So there's no way to remove that knowledge from the brain of the Iranian mm -hmm. uh, scientific establishment. And here's the other thing. What do you bomb exactly? Right. See, the thing about inspectors are you can go look around and see if there are places you don't know about where maybe they're doing some nuclear activities. If you're bombing without inspectors on the ground, you're just counting on the places you already know, mm -hmm. and you can't stop a covert program because you can't bomb something that you don't even know exists. Right. So by far the best solution to this was the solution we arrived at, which is not a perfect solution, 
But it is one where we can have confidence that we have stopped them from being able to move towards a nuclear weapon and avoided a war and achieve this result without firing a single shot. Right. So concurrent with that deal, we resolved uh, an old court case that, long story short, led us to pay back the Iranians $1.3 billion uh, that we owed them from, what, the 70s? Yeah, Um, exactly. And, you know, there was a lot of talk about how sort of $400 million in cash was loaded onto a plane and flew over. And I'm wondering what what you think about, A, critics who say the Iranians export terrorism and so we shouldn't give them money in any event, or B, you know, somehow that the optics of cash on a plane is particularly problematic. Look, the optics of cash on a plane is not great. Okay, (laughs) Okay, let's, I mean, we got to be honest that that, that's not great. Now, turns out this is one of those great practical problems. Right, we need to Venmo them? Right, exactly. You know, we don't, they, it's not like the Iranian PayPal account would just (laughs) fire over 400 million. Because we have sanctions on these guys, we're not giving them easy banking access. So to get them their money, that's kind of what we had to do. It doesn't mean it doesn't look bad, but... If fair-minded people actually look at what the options were available to the administration, they can see, while this ain't great, it was it was the only real option that we had available. But why give them the money? What I don't understand about the critics uh, is that they say, you paid this money in exchange for getting the hostages back, when in fact, this was their money. Mm-hmm. This was not our money. We were going to have no choice but to pay probably not just this amount, but a much larger amount. We actually cut a deal to get it reduced to give them their money back. But we basically said, look, why would we give you your money back as long as you're holding our people? Mm -hmm. Like, We want to know that our people are out before we give you the money back. That's not a hostage exchange. That's us, in fact, holding their money hostage to make sure our people got out and then we would give their money back to them. So, So you view it as leverage? I think it was leverage. And I think if we had done it the opposite way, If we had said, all right, fine, we'll satisfy the judgment because we're obliged to do so, and then we'll see what happens with the hostages they're holding, Mm -hmm. the president rightly would have been pilloried for that. So I think he did it the only way that was going to make sure that the United States got its people home. Right. And I I kind of yada, yada, yada too much here. The nuclear negotiations that you were a part of were a separate and distinct track, right? That was only about those issues and didn't get into the fact that they were holding our hostages. Yeah. In fact, I... When I found out about the plane flight and the fact that the hostages were going to be released, those were things that were happening utterly separately. Like they, they came as news to me. It wasn't it. something that I was working on. Got it. One thing that, you know, I, I left the White House in March of 2013 and, you know, the Arab Spring had, had long since sort of devolved into something that I think at the beginning was hopeful uh, for a lot of us in our minds to, to a to something that didn't feel as hopeful and, and that no more so than in Syria. And I think, you know, it's hard today for me to look at the stories coming out of Aleppo and to see the level of human suffering and, and to feel okay with it. And I don't know what the answer is, but the humanitarian cost is heartbreaking. And I just wonder, with the benefit of hindsight, do you think there's something we should have done differently or does a humanitarian intervention require more than sending some troops to a country? It requires an invasion on the scale of Iraq. And, and even that clearly didn't prevent enormous numbers of uh, civilian casualties. Right. I'm just wondering what you think sort of looking back. I just think it is so hard to argue given the sheer scale of death and destruction and the millions of people who have been turned out as refugees who are now in Europe – other parts of the world. 
it's just impossible to argue that there wasn't more we could have done to reduce that level of suffering. We could debate what at what level, and I certainly would have never supported an Iraq-style invasion of Syria. Mm -hmm. But I don't believe, I'm not one of these people who believe your two choices are do nothing or do Iraq. Mm -hmm. I think there are options in between mm -hmm. that we probably should have pursued. At the time, I think the calculation the president and others made was we could make the situation worse if we do those mm -hmm. things. But given how things have played out, and this is with hindsight, in right. fairness, I mean, you make right. decisions in the shadow of uncertainty looking forward. This is in hindsight, but I just think it's so hard to argue with a straight face. No, there's nothing we could have done to reduce this amount of suffering. I think there are things we could have done, which at the time we thought, boy, if we do those things, life will be worse. But it's just, I don't think people were then contemplating just how bad <clears throat> it would mm -hmm. get without us doing more. So let's talk about what some of those things are, because you hear people talking about arming the rebels. I guess the question was always to, to the president and to me, which rebels are we talking about? Uh, how much responsibility do we have to sort of vet them? I mean, is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah, so that would be one. And, you know, I was one who was more of an advocate for doing that earlier and mm -hmm. in a larger way because early on in this conflict, there was a much more cohesive armed opposition. Mm -hmm. What ended up happening was – Assad did his best, Assad, the president of Syria, did his best to try to radicalize the opposition so that he could go around the world and say, it's either me or the terrorists. Yeah. But early on, you had a fairly cohesive, moderate opposition who I think we could have provided military support to, and they would have had a greater chance to put pressure on the regime and force a, a diplomatic solution that, that reduced the violence. Mm -hmm. I also think that some amount of direct use of American power to basically send a signal to Assad that he's got to come to the table and negotiate an outcome here, something that in hindsight, we certainly should have contemplated. It's a debatable proposition, whether the use of American military power makes things better or worse. And yeah. in a lot of circumstances, it, it can make things worse. But, right. you know, it is difficult for me to see how had we tried, we would have ended up in a worse position than we're mm -hmm. in right now. I guess this is one of the things I wrestle with, which is that there are two very bad actors in this fight. There's ISIS and there's Assad. And what has become, been front and center in the sort of minds of, of the American press and what we're concerned about has sort of flip-flopped over time, right? So yeah. people often talk about the red line. The president said he would drew a red line at using chemical weapons. Uh, and ultimately, he chose not to... Uh, take military action against Assad when he used chemical weapons and Congress didn't vote to authorize uh, military action. But one thing I think like people don't necessarily realize is that, you know, when we were mostly concerned about ISIS and their growing strength, we would have been bombing Assad who was fighting them. So I'm just wondering, how do you prioritize these bad actors in terms of what we should right. be doing? I mean, this is the problem with being the United States of America. <laughs> a lot of other countries get to kind of pick and say, we're going to deal with this and not that. Right. We've got to walk and chew gum at the same time. Right. And I've always believed that you had to deal with Assad and ISIS simultaneously because there was no scenario in which you could leave Assad sitting there, take care of ISIS, and not just have the cousin or son or daughter of ISIS rise up in its place. Right. So we had to resolve both of these on simultaneous tracks, or we just continue to deal with it. And we find ourselves, the United States finds itself in this kind of impossible position a lot in the world. 
And I don't think that that can be an excuse for doing nothing. What do you think the end game is in, in Syria at this point? I mean, I, I know you don't have a crystal ball and, you know, predicting is, a, is useless. But I'm wondering if you think there's something more we should be doing today that would help get us to a better outcome. Or what, what is a good outcome in Syria at this point? It's so hard to say, given the level of uh, complete breakdown in that country and given the uncertainty around what the Trump administration is going to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard for me to opine on this because Trump has basically gone out and said, let's just let the Russians deal with it, which right. essentially means more bombing of civilians, more gassing of one kind or another, the whole nine yards. And so if I had to predict, I think things in Syria for civilians in Syria are just going to continue getting worse. That is depressing. Um, is there anything people listening to this can do in their own lives to get engaged, to be involved, to try to help things? I mean, should they put pressure on their government? Should they give money to humanitarian organizations? Like what can people do? Because a lot of people care so much. And you you have these flare-ups in in foreign policy where like the Coney video is wildly viral and people, it it gets on everybody's radar screen. We all care. We all want to get engaged or bring back our girls, you know, these instances. And then it feels so hard to make an impact. And I'm wondering if you, if you have suggestions for people. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the biggest thing that American people who care deeply about this can do is support the efforts to deal with this refugee crisis. There are millions of people in refugee camps in Jordan, in, spread across Lebanon and Turkey and then all over Europe. And if you've got money, if you've got there, – there are organizations that allow you to send your blankets, your books, your children's toys. I mean we are talking about innocent men, women, and children, these heartbreaking images of the little boy on the beach or the boy in the back of the ambulance. And I would say that – if you know you organize a community drive or you work through your church or whatever your religious organization is or you just go you can find pretty easily online some very credible reputable organizations like the International Rescue Committee that are working on behalf of these refugees and i would encourage everybody to feel that they own a small part of trying to help this this is mm-hmm. human suffering on such a massive scale it's almost hard you can be numb to it yeah. but Trying to be supportive of that, I think, is so important. And by the way, the more Americans feel that they are connected to that, mm-hmm. you know, in a very human way on that level, I think the more then we create a rhythm in this country where people feel that the United States should continue to be invested and play a, this important force for good role in the world. Mm-hmm. And I worry that that's slipping away from us a little bit because of the rhetoric that we're hearing from some of our political leaders about building walls and who cares about what's happening over there. Let's take care of ourselves here at home first. Yeah, the, the lack of empathy in almost anything Donald Trump says and does for anyone unlike him is it's shocking. I mean, it, it's upsetting. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know the government can solve all these problems, but I think government should care about all these problems. They should. Want. And the thing is, the thing that gives me hope and optimism going forward is I actually think the American people have a deep reservoir of empathy, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I think we have to count on them to step up and fill some of the voids that are going to be left in the coming years. And I think the refugee crisis is a great place to start on that. So do you think Syria and ISIS is the biggest foreign policy challenge facing Trump? Or is it something that's we're not sort of immediately seeing? I think it's probably something we're not immediately seeing. Um, That in 2017, 
the biggest foreign policy story will be something that that we can't perfectly predict right now. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's the North Koreans pushing the envelope in terms of their tests. Maybe it's another kind of turn of the crank of the terrorist threat. Maybe it's something cyber related. Right. But I think the most important thing for us to recognize is that we have to be prepared for the unexpected, be nimble enough to be able to respond effectively Mm -hmm. to it and be thinking about, okay, what are threats over the horizon? And that over the course of the eight years that, you know, the the years you spent in government, the years I spent in government, I feel like we got better over time at that. That that you it's hard for a new administration when you just come in to grapple with the enormity of all the challenges out there and the complexity of them. Uh, and the speed of events. And the speed of events. And I, they're only getting faster. I mean, from the national security staff, right? I mean, we you have a full plate. You come in with two hot wars. You're in meetings about Iraq, followed by Afghanistan, followed by al-Qaeda, followed by what's our Asia policy. And then there is a catastrophic earthquake in Haiti. Right. And that's all you do right. for the next month. Right. I found myself sleeping under a filing cabinet in the embassy in Port-au-Prince and on a runway trying to sort of like help in any little way I can. And it's just... I mean, first of all, that experience for me was one of the most astounding looks at the capacity and professionalism of our military. Right. What those guys and men and women got done in the Coast Guard. uh, And and turning around on a dime to do it. On a dime. I mean, ships redeployed, all hands on deck, like literally saving lives. And you're driving through that place and there's bodies in the streets. I mean, 250,000 people plus killed, right? But I mean, it's – you have to have a structure and a staff and a team in place – to handle these things. Right. And that scares the shit out of me with this administration. Because if you had been asked, so that happened in January of 2010, if you had been asked in December of 2009 to write down on a piece of paper all the things you were worried about in January of 2010 and what you thought you'd be spending your time on, you'd be on like page four of your notebook before Haiti yeah. you know, possibly Curry. appeared. And then all of a sudden in January of 2010, it's a massive deployment of America's military. You're living in Port of Prince. Right. And right, your point is exactly right. Having a system in place to be able to respond effectively and across multiple vectors, civilian, military, you know, to get the public sector, the private sector all aligned to help solve a big challenge like that. It's a big piece of business. And yeah, I think there are real questions about that. That requires at the end of the day, presidential leadership to say, I respect the professionals, the military professionals, the intelligence professionals, the diplomats. I respect the idea that we need order and a system and a process in place. And it's not at all clear to me that that that's high on the list of priorities of the incoming team. But, you know, I think we owe it. Ultimately, the success of any president is the country's success. And I do think we owe it to the American people to think about what are all the ways in which we can support the national security apparatus of the incoming administration Mm -hmm. in trying to keep our country Mm -hmm. safe and keep our country strong. The last thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, Jake, was the was the Benghazi attacks. I remember I remember that day so clearly, in part because leading up to the September 11th attacks, there is this massive movement of the government, the military, the intelligence community to sort of like rattle the trees and go to all their sources and review threat streams for from Al Qaeda and other extremist groups for the anniversary of 9/11. Right, and we I think we all woke up that morning. And for a while, it was very quiet. And, you know, then around sort of late afternoon that day, there was this sort of first White House Situation Room alert um, out of Benghazi that, you know, something had happened at our, our, our facility there. 
and then the ambassador was missing. And very quickly, we all realized that this was a huge problem and a huge deal and a tragedy. Um, and, and I remember being in, you know, the first of, you know, hundreds of hours, I think, of Situation Room meetings. Uh, I think, you know, I remember Hillary Clinton came in, I think probably kicked you or Cheryl out of the chair and, and took over because, you know, Chris Stevens was her friend. He was someone who had briefed her personally and she cared so deeply about this. I mean, you could see it in her face and hear it in her voice. Um, how concerned she was. And, and over time, um, we figured out what happened. And I think I think any fair reading and review of the Benghazi attacks was there should have been more security there to protect these people. But I'm wondering, when you think back on those days, how it so quickly became this politicized thing about talking points and not about the substance of like, diplomats serving in really dangerous places and how we need to do more to keep them safe. I think it's just honestly pure, unadulterated cynicism on the part of people who decided to exploit a human tragedy and a national tragedy for political purposes. First, as a weapon against Barack Obama uh, in his reelection campaign, and then as a weapon against Hillary Clinton, it, with a lot of collateral damage along the way. A lot of people who had worked their hearts out to try to respond to what happened and deal with the aftermath and, you know, were tarred and feathered as being mm -hmm. somehow involved in a conspiracy that didn't exist. I mean, I think there's no other way to put this than this was a cynical ploy, a partisan political ploy to do something to use the deaths of people for partisan political advantage. And what's amazing is that after several years of enduring this, we finally had the Republican leader in the House go out on television and directly admit that right. and say, yeah. we formed a special committee for the purpose of driving down Hillary Clinton's poll numbers. Yeah, Kevin McCarthy went out and said, look, you know, we formed this committee and it, it hurt her approval. And here's yeah. the amazing thing. What happened in Benghazi was painful. It was personally painful for you and I having been involved in it. It was obviously painful for Hillary Clinton, as you said, and for so many others. But it was not the first time that something like this had happened. Yeah. We lost the lives of hundreds of Americans in Lebanon under President Reagan right. and uh, many American deaths in Tanzania and Kenya under President Clinton. And the idea that the Congress would come after Ronald Reagan and personally hold him accountable for decisions about how a truck bomb got into the embassy, it was unthinkable in the yeah. 80s because it's ridiculous. Right. And the idea that... You would fast forward to 2012, 2013, 2014 and say President Obama and Hillary Clinton are personally responsible for the height of the walls and the number of mm -hmm. guards in Benghazi is equally just completely missing the point on the way that our government works. Right. I mean, I think when we talk about you know, depoliticizing foreign policy, I, mean, I think people there's, – there's certain decisions that are like very technical in nature, right. right? One is the height of a blast wall. One is the distance of a fence from a facility. Like those are made by career professionals. That's right. And, and people like us, we would never second guess right. that. What the hell do I know about these things? And we wouldn't second guess it because what do we know? We also wouldn't second guess it because these people get it right 99.9% .9 yeah. of the time. They do an amazing job. Yeah. I mean, diplomatic security is protecting U.S. diplomats in war zones – in dangerous hotspots against terrorists, against standing armies, against all kinds of people. And the idea that you're going to substitute 
the Secretary of State's judgment or the political staff's judgment for the judgment of those mm -hmm. security professionals. It's completely crazy, yeah. and you would never do that. And so to come in after the fact and say this all lands – Hillary Clinton should have been making individualized decisions about one of 270 posts in the world doesn't make any sense. The talking points piece – I just still can't fully wrap my head around. I, I know, and, and you know, th this is where like I had a very direct role in in the communications of all national security issues. And what what I remember happening is what you know there were pe reporters were calling me and saying, you know, I have sources telling me this was an attack timed for the anniversary of nine eleven, and we had no evidence, and there still is no evidence to this day that that was a fact. And so we sort of answered those questions, and then you know the intelligence community developed sort of a the best information we had that moment and that was evolved over time and i guess where we fucked up where i messed up was i guess i should have just said i'm not going to comment on right. an ongoing investigation until we know for sure but the notion that the youtube video had no role in the benghazi attack it's just not, it's not accurate right there's there's literally news stories quoting people who were at the facility that night in Benghazi attacking it, saying, I'm here because they insulted our prophet right. in this film. There were literally dozens of embassies. There was an embassy, there was a facility in Australia that had a protest because right. of this video. We were scared to death that people were going to get killed in Pakistan, uh, Sudan, the embassy was overrun. Yemen, like, Tunisia. Yemen, dozens yeah. of places. This was a global firestorm because right. of this video. The notion that it had nothing to do with Benghazi, I think, just rationally makes even less sense than saying it did. Certainly, there there were probably bad guys there that night who may have had wanted to go after this place at some point. But I, I think, I guess, the assessing motive is so hard. Yeah, you know what the amazing thing is, the Washington Times, which is a conservative newspaper here in D.C., which is you know part of the echo chamber that accused Hillary and Obama and all of us of all these dastardly crimes in the context of Benghazi, including manipulating these talking points. If you look at their coverage, I think from a couple of days after the attack, maybe September 14th or 15th, they quote in their stories on Benghazi, people at the facility, right. as you said, talking about the video right. as having been the cause of it in their own paper. And then they, three days later, they're accusing a, gr a grand government conspiracy because the government is saying roughly the same thing. I mean, the level of sort of revisionist history that goes into that is yeah. really extreme. The other thing is that people will consistently say, well, it can't possibly have been a video because it was a terrorist attack. Right. I think everybody now remembers the, the attack in Paris at Charlie Hedbo, the, mm -hmm. the newspaper, right. where clearly Al-Qaeda – clearly a terrorist attack. Why'd they do it? Because of the cartoons right. and drawings right. and other things that were happening. So you can have a terrorist attack also be about a video or a cartoon. We've seen that repeatedly over time. Nobody questions that. So do I believe and did I testify before the Benghazi committee that the video had something to do with this attack? I do and I did. Yeah. And I think any fair reading would suggest that that is the case and trying to argue otherwise I think is wrong. Part of our problem, I think, is that rather than coming back hard on that point mm -hmm. in the aftermath, we all yeah. were just so Felt surprised to yeah. be <laughs> to be accused of these things which we did not do that we all kind of went into a defensive shell. And yeah. I sort of wish in hindsight that we had swung back a little harder in the mm -hmm. aftermath.
Yeah, well, me too. And and I also hope going forward that the conversation now that po- the elections are over can be about the intelligence people, the community staffers, the diplomats, the people in our military who work abroad in dangerous places doing important things. And let's just support them. Jake Sullivan, one of the smartest guys I worked with, one of the nicest people I worked with. Thank you so much for taking the time. Crooked Media thanks you. Pod Save America thanks you. This was great. Thank you so much, man. Thanks, Tommy. Really appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.